Welcome to the Crash Course Podcast. I'm John. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And without any further ado, we're going to start talking about this week's episode. There wasn't any ado, actually. There wasn't. Well, there was a, there was well, you said further. You said further. There was there the wasn't... introduction music, which is which is a little bit of an ado. Is that ado? ado? That's pretty standard. I feel it's like at this point ado. now there's much ado about nothing, really. Oh, God. I was leading up to a much better pun <laughs> using that title. That's why I cut you off, because one pun is better than two puns. But I would have been doing one pun. I, we so. can edit him out, and you could put in your pun. You want me to do that? I no, can do that. I, could do, I have over. this the power. Over. Yeah, but you would insert the pun hater over me. I normally like your puns. He always hates them. That's I don't. True. Oh, I mm. scoff. There's a difference. Hate Scoffing is too much effort. <sighs> Scoffing yeah. is still a negative emotion towards pun. I don't, I don't know. I'll decide in post. You know what? I'll decide in post. He does have that yeah, power. Yeah, he does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like Lex he's, Luthor. He's power hungry. Yeah. All right. Well, you have the power right now, John. What are we doing? Well, before we get to what we're doing, I'm actually going to pull at Steve from last week and take over the topic of the week and explain why we're doing it. And a few weeks ago, I was talking to Steve and we were talking about how the symmetry of everybody starting the new year off and us going in rotation of starting the new year off is kind of a thing that we've been doing. This year it was Matt's turn and Steve made a, an offhand comment that I usually bring on electronica. So I brought on electronica. It's a thing I do. Far be I it guess. for you to disappoint. And at this point, I think I brought on like two-thirds, three-quarters of the electronica we've actually experienced on the show. Yeah, and I would say that me and Steve haven't even brought an even number. Probably our guests combined have brought on more electronica than me or Steve individually. That, it was, it was inherent in a lot of the stuff I brought. It was, yes, but I usually dive right into it because I like me, electronica. It's usually butchered in a lot of the stuff I've brought. Yeah, a little bit here, a little <laughs> bit there. You just kind of get like it sliced off nice but altogether fleeting cuts of electronica in the stuff you bring in. Fair enough. I was going with a, a media metaphor right there. It was, it was, it was getting away pop. from me. Yeah, mostly pop. But um, I'm kind of known as the electronica guy. If you don't listen to us, then you wouldn't know that. But frankly, it's kind of obvious if you go down my picks. I Whereas I always say, hey, it's John, the electronica guy. Yeah. I think you revel in it a little bit. I thoroughly enjoy electronica, which is weird because I'm a self-proclaimed lover of words. And electronica doesn't have a lot of words. Or at least the electronica <laughs> I lean a... towards doesn't have a lot of words. Interesting reason. But um, it actually, to give the background information, it actually stems... Pretty much from my childhood. Now, I wasn't listening to a lot of electronica, but I had the foundation built up there. Um, very early age, I was into a lot of fantasy and a lot of science fiction. And it's important to know that I was really into science fiction at a young age. Star Wars was one of my favorites, if not the movie trilogy I would always go back to. I still argue that's fantasy. It, yes, and I didn't know it at the time, but that's my point. It ah, was science okay. fiction. Yeah, yeah, no, all right. I'm the same boat. Yeah, and that led to other things, both in literature and in movies and in television and all forms of media that I would, you know, enjoy. But one of the things that stuck out to me in Star Wars was not just the dialogue, not just the settings and everything like that, but specifically. R2-D2 and his language, the mm. beeps, the sweeps, the creeps, and all the sort of stuff that he just spurts out. 
it's 8-bit. Or at least that's what it felt like at the time. Because at the same time I was loving science fiction movies, I was also loving video games. And video games in the very early years were all 8-bit electronica that's what it became eventually but it was the processor could only do so much sound well i think in a couple instances it was actually the guy who was responsible for making almost every single star wars sound effect sometimes it was him going into a microphone yeah a little bit here a little bit there yeah Yeah. especially when uh r2 gets shot with that uh what's it called the The crossbow laser crossbow yeah Yeah, and blows up yeah yeah uh, it's it was always interesting getting back on track <laughs> that um, the sounds that he would create as well as the sounds that these video games were creating and I was very heavily into video games at the time um, so when I started really discovering things for myself not necessarily music but just forms of entertainment I tended to gravitate towards science fiction themes or fantasy themes but we're going to focus on one of the two so Robert Heinlein Kurt Vonnegut, guys have talked about a lot when it comes to literature on this podcast. They bled over into the original Starship Troopers movies, which really was a travesty, and other little bits of that. Alien and Aliens, which I really didn't enjoy because they were horror, but loved for the science fiction elements of I them. I can't get enough of those two movies, personally. They are the two best in the series, for sure. Well, they're <laughs> two of the best horror movies of <laughs> all time. Yeah, that's, that's, that's more true. the important point, but yeah. yours is also a valid point. <laughs> But what really changed my perception was during high school, two things happened. One, the 8-bit music scene started to actually blow up, and I got into it. It wasn't Weezer for me. It wasn't Green Day. I wasn't drooling over specific musicians. But I was enjoying electronica, at least in that form. And then I started to expand into other things like Darude and Kencraft and all the other forms of electronica, which was primarily actually trance and house and club music of that sort that was readily available. But at the same time, I was introduced through one of my high school teachers to Fruity Loops. And I've talked about this before as well. Fruity Loops is one of the real early programs that were free to use. At least there was a trial version I could get a hold of that allowed you to make your own electronica. And it was a smorgasbord of sound. And that was one of the biggest things that I got hooked into. The very fact that a synthesizer or a computer program could make so many different noises without having to create another instrument, where all you really have to do is just get it into the actual format of the music itself or the sound itself and start manipulating it from there. I dabbled with it. I was never particularly invested in it or particularly good at it. My longest tracks were three, three and a half minutes long. But I always enjoyed just the idea of taking ones and zeros and bits and bytes and actually making music out of that. Not having to learn the guitar, not having to be a good vocalist, but being able to just mathematically see the music. And that's why music and math became very linked for me. It was sort of like the meshing of two of my favorite parts of, of the world, two of my favorite parts of society really coming together and showing me something that was very beautiful. It also allowed me to start, in my college years, getting into the weird parts of electronica, the ambient stuff, or the really heavy precursors to dubstep, or the really weird trance stuff, and it just got its hooks into me. I never really followed any particular musicians or DJs or anything like that. I rather followed like movements when we were going through... Uh, all the different genres on the show countless times. There's always those genres that feel like, well, this was the electronica version of classic rock. This was the electronica version of punk. This was the electronica version of classical. And it always intrigued me that 
it felt like there was an electronica version of everything. All these different genres could be reproduced in one way or another in some respect. Just to form an entirely new aesthetic. Yeah. yeah. But not only that. Electronica also allows you to go further and do something that really didn't conform to any of the previous genres. Which is why, for me, like at the end of the day, Electronica is one of my favorite super genres. Because there's just such a variety of things in there. Yet they all still nod towards an aesthetic that I've always enjoyed. Really, really always just just loved from a very young age. But that brings me to the other part of why I chose this particular album. ASMR. We've talked about it before on the podcast, and it's a relatively new phenomena, or at least a new classified phenomena, for something that's actually kind of old. It's sounds that do something to you, that trigger a response that is extremely positive and usually euphoric. Uh, it's one of those feelings where you get it at the top of your head and it just rolls down the back of your spine. Well, now we actually have the term ASMR to explain that to us. And after Steve made the comment about me making Electronica kind of a focal point for the new year, I don't begrudge you that, Steve. That's, not, that's, I'm not passing, I'm passing blame. Telling it like it is. I actually wanted to find some something different. I ended up not, but I wanted to find something different. Um, so I just started looking up ASMR music. And a lot of ASMR music is not actually ASMR music, or at least isn't new. There's a lot of people talking on various boards and everything like that of what music causes an ASMR response. Like actual existing songs yeah. by like a rock band, say Led Zeppelin, causing ASMR for people or something And like that, that is actually fairly common, even though... Uh, a lot of people attribute ASMR to low speaking or unusual sounds mm -hmm. or extreme uh, amplification of normal everyday low sounds. It applies to more than just that, though it tends to be a little bit away from the standard. Uh, with ASMR and music put together, I was hitting a dead end over and over again. So I just kept searching. It was about five or six pages deep in Google that I finally found these guys, and I don't even remember what search term I was particularly looking for, but I eventually stumbled across Two Changes by Beatrice Dillon and Rupert Clairvaux. Uh, published by Parallax Editions, this was about as, as small as you could possibly get. It's on Bandcamp. It's two tracks. I didn't know at the time that it was actually 40-ish minutes, 35-ish minutes long, but it was two tracks, and I started listening to the first one. And I didn't realize it, but 15 minutes in, I went, oh, wow, I'm 15 minutes into the first track. And it was a heck of an experience. I actually was getting not a full-fledged response, but I could definitely see why these terms started to pop up when talking about this piece. Well, you just touched on one of the things I find most interesting about this album. It is, yeah, a two-track album, which mm -hmm. doesn't even come close to anything we've tackled. It, it's going to be an interesting experiment for us. I mean, we may have just tackled a classical album last week, but one thing that album didn't give us was any curveballs in terms of track length. They were nice, bite-sized consumables. And we've actually had this discussion on uh, track length before and how storage media and radio is really to blame for the expected pop song track length. Before that, I guess a good standard was the length at which someone might feel comfortable sitting at a recital. Too short, and why even bother making the trip? Too long, and you get fidgety, and the, the guy with whooping cough sitting next to you, he's just getting out of hand, and it's unpleasant, generally unpleasant. But yeah, the early records, 78s, I think one of the main reasons uh, why we dramatically shrunk the time slot, only to find that in 30 years it wasn't that much of an issue anymore. New storage media took root, and 
and what wasn't possible is possible all of a sudden. It's just that if you want a shot at radio, most artists still prefer to stay on the shorter side. I always enjoyed the binary structure of one storage medium, however, and that's the LP 33 RPM vinyl. To quote Frank Costanza, you got the A and you got the B. Or just stop there in this case. Side A, side B, each about 20 minutes long. You could slice that up further if you want to, or you could just leave it as is. Solid blocks of sound with the brief intermission of flipping it over. Unless you had that cool little auto-flip thing back in the 70s, which I kind of meant you were like a stud. Sort of a bachelor's move. But it then you take, could be... It would take so much longer than actually walking over and flipping it. No, no, it would, it would go pretty quick. Yeah, but you just do it yourself. No, like you're sitting, you're sitting on, on the couch and your girl's next to you and she's like, oh, the music's over. I guess you better get up and flip it. What? It's, just, it's surprising. You, you were saying? You, you live in a wrong era, Steve. I, I, really, I'm really do. born into the wrong era. <laughs> probably um, do. Well, yeah, but, and I, this definitely gets a sense of having a side A and a side B because it's two long tracks I could easily see this in a vinyl format in fact they are actually selling this album as a vinyl I believe that's the thing a lot of artists like tended to listen to their instincts and they wrote their music to exactly that model back in the day these side A and side B monster pieces and considering Beatrice Dillon and Rupert Clairvaux advertised their new vinyl quite prominently on their Bandcamp page I suspect they wanted to cater to that experience the same river twice and a different river once and all that that entails it's a different way to hear an album and in the digital age, frankly, it's all fair game, provided you don't give a sh about making serious money. Uh, I'm sure they're doing splendidly, and of course it's not as unorthodox as I make out. I just wanted to get that out on track length. Well, sure, and also, I mean, I'd say one of the more interesting punk albums I ever heard was, um, I'm blanking on the name of the album, oh, it's called The Decline by No Effects. It was one track. The whole album was one track. Well. And it, it sounded like there were individual songs. But there was a through line. It did seem to have a through line that conceiving it as one track made sense. And just that was in the day of CD, not yet in MP3 land. And so it was an interesting way to put together an album, you know. And they didn't have individual track names on the back of the album. It, it, doesn't, said, it doesn't even register digitally as nope. separate tracks it's, where they just kind of put you in separate spots? It's one track. One track. And it's called The Decline. Yeah, the track yeah. is called The Decline. Like and, I said, it happens. Yeah. It's just, you know, not something it's everybody not consumes. No, it's definitely uncommon. But I think it... it is an interesting way to go, especially when you're trying to do something different with your music. Like at that time, NoFX was trying to step away from other punk bands to be a certain kind of punk band, to interact with their fans a certain way, in politics a certain way. And so that's why they made that album the way they did. Right, and well, let's get into their background because it might inspire why they would want to do a project like this. So Beatrice Dillon, start off with her, she is a techno producer from the UK. That in itself did not take any digging. But her website, dylanwork.com, is the most minimalist website I have ever seen. It is a blank page that says Beatrice Dylan in the corner, and if you click that, all you get is a bunch of tour dates. So expect absolutely zero information on her from that source. Uh, she once studied classical guitar, she studied bass and drums, and uh, by the way, I rarely quote Pitchfork, but I feel the need to share its opinion that there is absolutely no entry point for the work of Beatrice Dillon. It's very eclectic. She's done a little bit of everything, tuned percussion vignettes, lots of techno, some of it jazzy, and a multitude of collaborations. I would describe most of it as falling broadly under computer and electronic music, which 
may result either from pure programming, some musicianship, and also the digital arrangement of offbeat material. But make no mistake, she has a flair for a good club track. It's just that she's on the experimental precipice of that scene. Look up a track called Face A, which is also a project with Rupert Clairvaux, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The only comparison I have as far as our experience in this show would take us uh, it would be Aphex Twin, which is another Hudan album, expectedly. But uh, really, check it out, because it's a very catchy track warped by these sickly saxophones over this really, really great groove. And notice I did not say sick saxophones. I said sickly saxophones. So, you they're, know, they're, 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 they're passing away soon? They're, well, you, I mean, they're still sick. You can't, you can't spell sickly without sick. Okay. And, and you can't be sickly without being sick already. That's not true at all. No, you don't actually have to be sick. You just have to have a poor constitution. <laughs> you could be sickly looking, even though you're not actually sick. You, you could be just... hale while looking sickly. Well, yes. despite all this, this track has a great constitution, I think. But uh, as to her own tastes, well, uh, for that I'm switching over to a quick interview she did with The Wire 369, where she said that, that techno is, and I assume she means unequivocally, quote, the most interesting music right now. She goes on to say, the kind of dance music that I like tends to be made by people who sound like they're not strictly listening to that, but that's what they want to make. Which kind of rings, actually, of a few Anna Meredith quotes. Uh, as to my recollection, I'll refer you here to episode 192, because fans of this music may well find that interesting as another electronic project, which I do want to point out was mine. Yeah, no, Wasn't you, you did bring that one. Yeah, yes. see, we're, we're... yeah, but her roots were in pop and classical composition. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so, over, so I'm just saying. She went over the line. Anyway. But it's, it's all about the goal here. Okay. But finally, if you'd like to hear uh, more on Beatrice Dillon's taste, she also has a spot as a DJ on a London internet radio station station that would be called NTS. She has two hours once a month with special guests techno and ambient. I actually misread that the first time assuming that she interviewed guests in those fields. She doesn't or at least not from what I've heard. You don't get to hear her or anyone else speak in this. It's just a playlist that she curates and so the music effectively is her guests. So that's 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Monday, monthly, but it doesn't say which Monday. But I think from previous episodes, you can ascertain that it's the second Monday of each month with a couple of months missing. So imagine that. If you only have once a month, then if you take off three sick days, then you've essentially taken off a season. I I'm sure she has other gigs. <laughs> I'm sure, too. <laughs> anyway, uh, then there's Rupert Clairvaux. Well, at the risk of selling his bio short, he's from France. Uh, he does composition, performance, mixing, and mastering. That's what his website says. And his website is only slightly more flushed out than uh, his counterparts. He actually shows the work he's done. It's not information heavy, but it's not as minimalistic. Really liked the font on that website. I'll point that out. Anyway, swinging back to the Bandcamp page, he has performed internationally as a drummer, percussionist, and keyboard player, and as a mix and mastering engineer. He's also made records featuring many of the world's leading experimental, improvisational, and free jazz musicians. I could go into his discography here, but that's just not today's goal, is it? Our goal is their collaboration together, and that is Two Changes, which is not the first of their collaborations, by the way. I should mention that they did something back in 2013. But in this album, Beatrice Dillon will be doing all of our drum programming, electronics, synthesizer, bass guitar, and field recordings, and Rupert Clairvaux will be doing our vibraphone, drums, percussion, additional drum programming, and field recordings. But there's a prominent third component, and it makes its appearance in the first track. That would be Eben Bull, who plays pocket trumpet and zither on our first track, Same River Twice. And a zither, by the way, is a German instrument in the Citern family. So it's kind of guitar-ish, but the difference is that it's sort of played flat, almost on your lap. So now you have all the background at your disposal. 
and I think we should probably kick it off with the album cover. I was going to say, this is a pretty front-heavy album. album episode. Yeah, we're doing that a lot lately. I feel like that's just kind of been our thing. Um, But yes, the album cover. So, it's pretty simple, actually, which is nice, I think, considering the content that we have to go through. It's a cliff face, rocks, it's not a beach, but it's kind of rocky, there's a little bit of grass, and then it just overlooks a body of water. It's impossible to tell whether it's an ocean, a lake, because it's only a square image. My guess is it's rocks over an open ocean, but... You can't really tell because you don't see a lot of the water. I, I would say there's a little bit of horizon just in the upper left side. Oh, yeah, yeah, I it can might see that. Be, it might actually be an ocean. Still, a moot point. It, yeah, it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, the, the water being that dark, my inclination is it's the ocean. Um, but depending on how big the lake or we have, other body of water is... We have track track titles that indicate river, river but, and, but it doesn't know, look doesn't, like a river. Doesn't really. Um, Actually, I thought that based on the just the blueness of the water and the whiteness of the rock, I would swear this is like something from from Greece. Right. You know, it just it looks very Mediterranean. Or Maybe. France. He is a citizen of France. Right. Clearly, no shortage of water reference in the cover, and as well the uh, track names. As for the music, we will discuss that. Um, well, it, ain't, th- it ain't the East River, I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's for sure. Not. No, it is not. Um, so track one. And as Steve mentioned earlier, but it bears repeating, is the same river twice. Clocking in at 18 minutes, 30 seconds. It is a full side A. That's a full side, full side A. a. All right, we're going to take this by the numbers, which yeah. is going to be very interesting here. Timestamps, sections, try to break this down by the by the compositional work that it is. Um, I could swear that this track started off with what I thought was an engine running. I think it was kind of a throaty engine, almost like mm-hmm. an old bar or an old prop plane that could be one of those field recordings, or it could be entirely manufactured, and this is just in the very beginning. It sounds almost like uh, an excavator or something of that caliber, a big old diesel yeah. engine in the background. It's it's. It's definitely you don't you don't get a lot of it before it's quickly suppressed by a lot of other things. But mm-hmm. for that moment, it was just an interesting physical industrial kind of sound to put me in that environment. Especially, it's a nice contrast considering you have such a naturific you know album cover and naturific track titles. It's it's strange that it went in that direction. But what it is suppressed by ultimately is this and that I don't think is the is an engine at all. I think that is something that is very uh produced something that may have arisen in the in the studio but what i can say is that it was mildly alarming it it actually gained strength because when it when it first crept in it was blended enough and syncopated enough that i thought it was going to become part of like a really really neat groove but they, they don't show those cards yet. Instead, it just plateaus for a while, still with the, the pitched percussions, like, sporadic notework in the background. But then you, you hear interruptions amidst this, like 31 and 33 seconds in, respectively. You hear little gaps that almost feels like the engine is fluttering or, or misfiring cylinders. So at least based on that initial sound effect, which I... I'm still pretty sure was a field recording of an engine, then this other sound that took it over almost struck me as a musical representation of that element to add to it. Yeah, this intro to the track, because of the things that Steve de- described, I mentioned it sounds kind of like a Foley artist's dream. Foley artists back in the old radio days did all the sound effects for your shows that had lightning crashes or, you know, things exploding. It was all done on physical objects in the radio studio. And so because of the physical nature of these sounds that we're getting so far, I really felt like I was kind of taken to something like that, though I didn't get a specific image yet. But it definitely felt like someone was creating uh, physical sounds for us to hear. 
I, that it, that's something that becomes more apparent later in this track to me because in the beginning it's still it's still just a few elements and then it gradually gets busier as the track goes on and then I would say absolutely. I think for me it's mostly that because those two sounds initial sounds that you mentioned were so physical and didn't feel musical that's why I initially thought it from the very beginning but you're absolutely right it does showcase as the track goes well, on. Well it's true you gotta squint a little bit. There yeah. is a little bit of musicality here especially in the percussion because the percussion is not as sporadic as I, as I made it out to be. There's that thumping, there is a beat here. It's kind of this four one and four one and but it doesn't do that in this in like every single measure. It doesn't do that over consistent. and over. Yeah. But you hear it often enough that you start to kinda detect a loop. That would be the more metallic drum work. It feels like to my ear it's almost a kettle drum. But the way it actually shapes, especially towards the ends of um, those major beats section and kind of warps out, it whirls out. You can tell it's synthesized because it is being yeah. synthesized. It, and I, kind of. I'm actually really entranced by that final effect on each round that we're going through with this sound. That long warp that they're doing to this kind of familiar note does a lot to really draw me away from the very physical nature of everything else that's going on. It puts me back in very firmly in the digital style. Right. Which then gets kind of destroyed when we get the pocket trumpet. Well, that's the thing that, that sort of uh, destroys this intro here, yeah, yeah because one minute in, this is what I would call the A section of the piece, pretty confidently. This seems to be the primary motive that, at least for the first half of it, I, I almost want to divide up this piece in terms of two movements, where the first movement features the pocket trumpet in specifically this fashion, making heavy use of that, that lip trill, that shake technique that we've actually come across before, but not in the mariachi sense this time. Instead, it's extremely noir. That's just that opening theme, you know, the first time we hear it, it goes up a fourth and then lowers a half step. And then the beat is persisting in the background, and it's it's fuller at this point, too. You even have a bass, like this thick subwoofer effect that just, just bellows in. So it's it's... It's a pretty interesting A section. I thought I thought it would uh, easily fit in a in a very experimental noir flick. Yeah, it for sure gave that kind of feeling. It was the the most musical the track had been up until that point too. Especially once the pocket trumpet rings out. In fact, for for a split second, I thought it was a saxophone just because of the kind of jazzy noirish way it played. Yeah, but. Obviously, stating before that it was a pocket trumpet, but I didn't even readily recognize that that was the sound. It just rung out in a way that I was like, ooh, interesting. You gotta listen to more pocket trumpet music, clearly. Uh, apparently. You also have to kind of focus on it because it feels like a voice. In fact, the very first it, the very first instant I heard it, it sounded like someone yelling or someone screaming. That very first split second was, what is that person doing? And then subsequent notes did say, okay, we're talking brass section, yeah. maybe woodwind, something like that. It's sax or trumpet, something in that area. But it did have a very humanizing effect on the track itself. Right. But what's interesting is, is that, you know, it's it's not ever present. Like, no. there's huge gaps between the phrases. So, like, there's, like, phrase A, which is what I just described, and then, you know, considering the pace of this piece and the beat has, has really stepped it up and it all seems very busy in the background, the melody is not this... It's not really with it lockstep. Yeah. It just comes in for that A, that A phrase and then there's sort of a B phrase that is 
it feels like it really lost steam in a, in a fairly short amount of time. And we were still in like, you know, a minute into two minute range right now. So, you know, you feel these long gaps between the phrases and it, it really just extends your experience of this. So that you can be at the two minute mark and still feel like you've actually been in this environment for like seven minutes. But it does give you time to sit with the beat and to feel it grow in power and intensity and to shift focus and also add a little bit more of a, a pulse throughout, kind of a, a shaker now in the background on eighth notes. And that's what's actually really good about what, not just the sound of the trumpet, not just feeling that piece, but also what emerges around the busy work that the trumpet's doing. Yeah. Whether it is a long phrase or something a little more frantic, uh, afterwards you actually hear the emergence of another complication to the beat, and then another and another, and it starts to actually gain quite a bit of steam. It's it's a very slow burn. While, yet, while another... yet the trumpet loses steam, which I think is pretty interesting. I love these trumpet parts for the twofold reason of what's going on right here. The emerging beat, as it gets more complicated and as it sort of flows into a B-ish section for the, the movement, or movement A, I, I don't know, movement one? How else will we terminology? We're, I, I we're don't know these. Still movement one, sort of. Okay. But this this sort of B section, after the long noirish trumpet counterpoints, you start getting a lot more of the Doppler drums. You start getting a lot more of the beat work really becoming fuller. I'm 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 thoroughly like not entranced, not quite yet, but I'm thoroughly invested in what the rhythm section is going to do. And I just wanted to keep getting more complicated. I kinda want a cacophony at this moment later on at the 18 minute mark I want that cacophony it's actually tough to know which section you're talking about now because I I feel that there is almost there, that B phrase that I discussed right where the trumpet re-enters at like 2 minutes and 25 seconds the trumpet here sound, it sounds very ancient like weakened almost like a snake charmer this soft uh, muffled melody and it might be it, it might be the focus but it's it's so meek next to the percussion which by this point is just so much more physical it's consuming the the, the space. It actually, it actually had time to build up to this. And I assume this is all Rupert Clairvaux, as he's credited with drums and not drum programming, because this sounds so much more physical. So I'm going to credit that to him, but we don't know all of this uh, specifically. I mean, it's, pretty, it's a collaboration, so it's, it's going to be impossible for us to know. But then by... Three minutes and 20 seconds, we start to break up that beat work just a little bit. The engine is starts sputtering even more at this point. Sounds of, like, soda cans being popped. Shakes and rattles. There's even, like, a, a almost sounds like some kind of goblet drum around, like, four minutes and 15 seconds. So all of this interim work just, like, lasts for another good minute between these phrases. And then I feel a B section, which could very well be the section that's, you were talking about. And that's where the trumpet returns with kind of a different melody this time. A bit looser. I was calling the B section the lead up to this actual B section because it was really at the point of those you, you, you it's how you divided I called them the Doppler <laughs> drums uh, because it, it feels like that one ring out was it gets electronic fied it sort of fades off and fades off and fades off I love that echo effect that's being thrown on top of all this that that one striking moment that elongates to five seconds long just feels so nice and so crystallized around the, the just just the, the, the wave I'm crashing in. Well, the other reason I thought this might have been the section you were talking about, because this is where they add a whole other palette of uh, percussive instruments that are not instruments, I believe. This goes back to the field recordings. I started to really feel at this point like I was in the center of a construction site, because this is where I started to hear lots of other things, like almost like jackhammers, metal drums, 
dropping a lots of a plethora of, of material, and it, it it started to add imagery to this track, which I think was something it was sort of lacking up to this point. The only imagery, the only reference point I had was the engine, but it was just a disembodied engine. It wasn't connected to anything. Then all of a sudden, here I felt like it, there was some connection. There was some there was something being constructed. I'm not sure what, but something. Yeah, for me, I didn't get really any clear imagery. Which is interesting because at this point, I'm my interaction with this piece is complicated. Um, to the fact that you know I'm struggling to really comprehend it, but I don't know that it needs to be comprehended either. And so I'm kind of in this nebulous place where I'm enjoying it, I'm engaged in it, and I'm curious about it, but I don't know that I understand it. I don't know that that's a bad thing, but because of all of that, and because of kind of how I'm swirling around with it at this point, you know, leading up into the, the, the part B that we're getting into, where it gets a little jazzier, musically I'm able to follow it more easily, but I'm still not really latching on any meaning to it other than to take it in as a musical piece. Well, I want to go into one word that you use, and that's understanding it. There's a lot of breath between a lot of the note work, and this allows you to really dissect each individual. Even when the trumpet goes a little bit on the haywire side, you can still hear everything that's going on because of how secluded it is from everything else. You're not trying to follow a single trumpet line for the five-plus minutes that we're in right now. You're just hearing it in bursts, in just utterances or yeah. exclamations of it. That's why I keep talking about it in phrases, and it's the, the sparsest phrases that we've ever really looked at. Well, that's not necessarily true. We've, we've looked at Lossal, actually, your last pick, come to think of it, had... If you want to call that phrase work, sometimes it would be a, a giant oscillation would be considered a phrase. So this is really not that experimental in that regard. It's just that y it is tough to break it up, even though I, I feel the necessity to break it up in terms of like, oh, call and response, phrase A, phrase B, in the couplet that you're accustomed to using. But I do kind of feel that here because of the change of the undercurrent. So yet I, I still kind of was able to, and I don't know if this is imposed or not, the way I want to impose it, I still was able to to sort of make this fit this form in terms of like movement one, movement two of your two tracks and then sections within that in A and a B and then within that a phrase A and a phrase B. It very often works, but you do have to take a leap of faith. And to go back to something else that Matt just said, uh, comprehension and trying to understand what the track is trying to say. For me personally, I'm. I, there are words that I could throw out here, like construction site. I'm getting a very, very construction site vision. Yeah, we were pretty synced on that. When I want to apply that sort of palette to it. But, and this is a big but coming from the imagery guy who likes to throw metaphors and similes and all sorts of incorrect terms on top of pieces of music. I don't feel like comprehension is the end goal here. Understanding it, that that you can understand. The piece you can understand as a whole. Or even just this A section we dissected, you can understand as a whole. And you can understand the individual parts. But comprehension is something that's a little bit more ethereal. That's something that you're not going to get on a first listen necessarily, or a second, or a fifth, or a hundredth listen. I want to say I comprehend what's going on right here. But I don't think that there's any heavy meaning to it necessarily, and I'm okay with that. I think for me it's mostly that the comprehension that I'm struggling with is more structural. Like, I get moments, but the through line, though 
in moments of the rhythm is in, is kind of apparent as a whole is not. It's well, when like we I get was... into it's when we get into part B that I think I start to get a more concrete vision of where this is going and what it's supposed to be. Well, it's like I was saying, I can pigeonhole it into this format that is mostly for our discussion purposes. I feel like that wasn't necessarily the intent yeah. to divide them up in this manner. Uh, so I guess really what John is describing is more of an art for art's sake kind of deal. Like, that, there, there's a bit of that here, and I don't deny that. Even when I enjoy parts of it, I admit that there's some impulse at play. Yeah, um, stuff that's designed for that moment to lead to other moments late, later that you don't really get a scope on until you can kind of connect the dots on the whole piece. A lot of retrospect going on. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of retrospect. All right, well, now that we're in this B section, let's talk about uh, something that I thought I was really glad to have back, and that was the slightly more forceful trumpet that we only really heard as a forceful uh, having a forceful character in the A section, the very first phrase. Well, here, it's a different melody. It is looser, but it has the intensity of part A. It's mm-hmm. it's jazzier, but it doesn't... It also doesn't maintain that. I mean, it, it's, it's strange because even when they give us this, then it dies down again so quickly. It's almost like it's just messing with us, and it happens at the same time as all those sound effects of construction work seem to sort of drown it out. But it was the B phrase of this that I really, really liked because it brings it back extremely forcefully. This five Five minutes and nine seconds. This one was absolutely wild. The trumpet comes in here and it's out of control. It's like a cry for dear life in all of the, the darkest fears of a poor little brass instrument. But it was immediately afterwards that I found one of my crystallizing moments of this piece, and that's the bois bois. <laughs> that third piece, just yeah. off center, yeah. falling down the scale. That moment as that that pause That's probably the kind was the of... most important part of the entire thing too. That pause in between. We go one, two, three. Well, and yeah. that, that that breath was just it was an impact of silence I had. Even the the rhythm at the same time, you know, this is all surrounding the same uh, the same moment where you hear the jackhammers really heavily, and also a really prominent. It almost kind of sounds like a hi hat. It could be just a metallic object of any kind, but it's 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 uh, approached like a hi hat, and it's more toward the left ear here. And all of this occurring in the same in the same region of this piece. It's, I like when this piece has more vigor to it, and I think those are probably my more favorite parts. We have it again a little bit later, another phrase at more toward 5 minutes and 49 seconds where the trumpet returns, but this time kind of manic. Not necessarily as forceful as it was at four, 5 minutes and 9 seconds, but it's like it's whirring now, and you feel the fear there, and there is still vigor in fear. Yeah, and this whole section here that we're talking about also throws in more sounds. Just electronic sounds and cacophony. There's kind of that, what yeah. sounds like a laser sound effect, but like a cheesy, like 80s, yeah, kind of like electronic toy laser sound effect that just fires off, um, kind of counterpointing the the trumpet here, which makes for an interesting dynamic and adding to this strange place that's being created amongst all this sound. It's really interesting. And then... I think where it crystallizes my letting go of my lack of comprehension is in this moment. Because while once it was brought up, I could p- picture this construction site, once we had this frantic trumpet and these other sounds coming along with that engine sound and other stuff, I wasn't really in a place anymore. I was just kind of in a whirlwind of 
sound and melody and noise that worked really well together and was very interesting. Yeah, I might be on the opposite front where I feel like I started out that way and then I kind of landed in a place that was a little bit more familiar. I mean, it's clearly not that everything happening has to do with the construction site, but I feel like once that entered my mind, I was there for as long as they keep me here. And it's not terribly long. I mean, the one thing that was interesting is the vibraphone, I feel, had started to enter here with just light little comping in the background. The vibraphone is a component of this album that, that... and really enters in a big way later, but I believe it's being used sparsely even in this earliest material, just in the background, just light little stuff. But let's push into the six minute mark, even further all the way to six minute 30, because that's after we're, I mean, we kind of just sit with that whole environment all the way up until that point, and then here it's a, it's a stark, a fairly stark transition. I would say, I mean, even an interlude, let's, Actually, let's just call it for what it is, and that's a drum solo. I, it's basically lasts from 6 minutes and 30 to 7 minutes and 30 seconds. And it's, so it's a nice one-minute block of something very different than what we've been experiencing. I wouldn't call it a drum solo so much as a rhythm solo because well, it's it's too heavily mincing words. Well, it's it's not just because it sounds like a drum, it's because it's it's a heavy interplay with what the rhythm section can possibly do. Between the I, I, the section that sounds like drumsticks being dragged along bars at different tempos and oscillating between stuff like that, the kind of peeking into glitch oriented beat work where you're starting to get pullbacks and really really cut and abridged sounds that are obviously electronica but just as obviously not whole well i'll be very blunt about what it reminds me of and that was the work of joseph bertolozzi which is connected to this show not in the fact that we reviewed his work but in the fact that matt here had an interview with him uh for crash chords autographs and i've been talking about joseph bertolozzi ever since uh episode two at least in a cursory sense because his bridge music which is based on his it's all based on structure. He uses structures to his own advantage in creating music. So he used the Mid-Hudson Bridge, which was, well, it's kind of near us. It's 90 miles up the river. It's a lot closer to where I went to college, which is why I brought it up in those early days. But then it was a precursor, and it was all, a, the goal was to get to the Eiffel Tower, where he used the Eiffel Tower and only sounds from the Eiffel Tower in order to create an entire album called Tower Music. So just his, uh, his rhythmic approach, as John was starting to say, I feel is very, very connected to that, or rather this is very connected to that. It, it is a little bit glitchy, at times it is sporadic, but it's that, it, it's appropriate to say that it's not strictly drums, it's just utilizing objects, you get a much broader sense of, a much broader palette being used, and that's what I felt here, but the approach is pure chaos, and that's what I love about it. Yeah, the percussive nature of this, but being rooted in striking something physical, absolutely reminds me of that as well. Especially once it picks up speed around the seven minute mark, where there's rapid tappings and loud thuds. It really does kind of get a sense of what Joseph does, which is take sounds that he's created from individual strikes and then compose music using those sounds, filling in um, scales and structured music that he's created and composed. And it uses field recordings, which is really more of my broader point. And it was a cacophony that I wanted for earlier, the one I mentioned earlier that I kind of wanted it to lead up to. It felt like a great release for the subtle tension that really had been building that you didn't quite notice in this first movement because after this we go pretty pretty straight but into the second movement of the piece the second movement of this track which 
I it feels a little bit on the Stark side, yet still borrows fairly heavily from what we had already learned in the first piece. Well, I would say that the intro to Movement Two, leading into the actual meat of Movement Two, leans pretty heavily on that pocket trumpet, especially because here it's being played in moments of silence. There's no other instrumentation when it rings through here, which gives it a much creepier and kind of off-putting feel because it's just echoing through what seems like empty space because of the kind of echo that's left on it. Seven minutes and 50 seconds. So what you get is this final burst, a long note that lasts, like I said, about 18 seconds. And to me, it was the creepiest thing on this album yet, mm-hmm. or at least it's the first of three creepy things on this track, uh, because it started mid-range, and then amidst that lip-shake thing, this is all the, still the uh, the pocket trumpet, and then it, it felt like it got tuned down a little bit. And then I believe there was actually some post-production effect going on, reverb definitely, and perhaps something else. But the reason it was so creepy to me is because it reminded me heavily of the sound from the original Alien film mm. uh, by Ridley Scott, that just that fantastically terrifying score by Jerry Goldsmith as they're exploring the deserted ship on LV-426. It's just this combination of wind and terror in an alien environment as the trumpet just gets dr- drowned in reverb. So, uh, granted, this wasn't as terrifying as that film because the, the setup of this whole entire track wasn't as fear-inducing, but I do like to point out when these uh, comparisons are applicable because, or where they're applicable, just so we can be honest about our own biases. It brought me to a place, and it was a very specific place in this instance. Well, I think also that stems from what Movement 2 does in the beginning because a lot of what, especially the first Alien movie, relies on is the lack of Alien. The lack of that creature. Yeah. The moments of silence. The long spells that you have to wait before you actually see their, his face. And after that moment you talk about, through the intro into the beginning of this, like I said earlier, it's those moments between the trumpet ringing out in this kind of warped and manipulated tone that it gives that same kind of feeling because it's in the gaps. It's in the spaces that yep. unsettles you. Yeah. And I think that's actually a pretty great great visual comparison to a soundscape that we're getting here. So that's kind of an intro, and then I guess we're in what I would call, again, just bear with me here, folks, an A section of a second movement. Eight minutes and eight seconds, which is different to me in a more dramatic sense, which is why I feel the need to break it up by movement, because you get more thumping, more jackharring, all that stuff, but it's all amidst a very steady beat this time. Something that I guess we would generally consider a little bit more musical, a little bit less experimental, but you're grounded in something. And this grounding actually reminds me of a piece we discussed way back when, Daft Punk Random Access Memories, the specifically the track Giorgio by Moradere. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, we get just the tick and the explanation of the tick and what the tick meant to the musician and how he would build upon it. It's almost the same BPMs, I, or at least in my mind, it's the same BPMs of that original tick. But this thump, there's a lot to ground me that I did not have in the previous movement. So when we start getting this steady, almost like typewriter machine on top of the steady beat, and the very noir-oriented trumpet phrases that are a lot more elongated than the burst of energy we were getting previously, that beat, that heartbeat, does a lot to add a solidity that was really lacking in the previous movement, and it was a great contrast to that previous movement. Yeah, it was It was interesting. The section, I mean, yeah, once the trumpet came in, I enjoyed it definitely more. And, I, and I, of course, I enjoyed the beat more, but eh, I have mixed feelings sometimes about going 
a little bit more digestible after being experimental. It, it locks you in a little bit more, but it needs to be done with some finesse. And I do generally think this was done with finesse. Uh, it, there were at times, though, where some of these sections I, I, I wish had a little bit more of a primary theme. Like, I almost feel like I had... Well, I had lost the civic engineering thing at a certain point, or, or I'd I'd certainly lost the pastoral connectivity of the of the uh, titles if they were ever a part of it, uh, and the album cover. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I admit this was a a bit of a moment where I wasn't sure where the album was going. Now, looking back on it retrospectively, I actually kind of see what it was. But at least as far as a first experience takes you, you know, there's not that immediate obvious notion that this is a new segment or a new movement. And I don't think that was a problem for me because I was not really focused in on the how or the why. I was just kind of in the experience of it. So I guess that bothered me less because I was just kind of, I was at the point of shrug, I guess I'm going with it. Like <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't torn one way or the other. So I just moved with it because I was still interested. I, so, I will tell you one, one way I connected the, uh, the, the civic engineering construction thing with the pastoral river connectivity. I thought that maybe it was like the building of a dam or something. I don't know. Sure. Just because that I mean, fits both of criteria. All right, sure. <laughs> I mean, the, the, there's no real way to argue one way or the other. I actually would would uh, qualify this movement as a zooming in of the previous. It felt like we were getting a lot more details of what had previously been glossed over. That engine we heard earlier maybe was actually being defined by this heartbeat, by this steady unifying force to be the th- the character I guess that we were first introduced to but now we're actually up close we're able to to touch it we're able to actually experience it under a little bit of a microscope because a lot of the ideas of the first movement get introduced here a lot of the the not necessarily the exact phrase work or exact scale work, but a lot of the same themes are showing up. Sure. So, and then they also bring up a lot of new stuff. Like, for instance, the, uh, the there's another creepy sound that I thought was kind of reflective of the first creepy sound. This one is another drone, sort of. It's not the trumpet, though. It's kind of an ominous undercurrent that lasts from 9 minutes and 30 seconds up to 9 minutes and 45 seconds. But then there's a trumpet melody that follows that that all of a sudden seems a lot more self-assured, like it, like it actually did spark the adrenaline in the trumpet in order to complete a sentence for once like that was the fear and response and you saw the response right afterwards which i'm kind of liking that little interplay because like i said if there was some primal emotions that i was feeling toward this piece it is a lot of that is a lot of what i would do after hearing a certain thing yeah after hearing something in the distance the fear and response pair up yeah and that really kind of kicks into gear around the 10 minute mark as the trumpet kind of gets livelier and all the other percussion and sounds that are here get livelier as well it's where i think we reach a peak for the cacophony but it doesn't ever really sound disjointed or jumbled there's definitely at this point a flow and a through line to what we have here instrumentally it's like you said steve it's more musical now in this movement than it has been pretty much the entire track but if i had one critique in that it doesn't change up as much here right. like there's about two and a half minutes where it does stay very constant between two, 10 minutes and, and 12 minutes and, and a half yeah it, and we don't get a really the next big kind of changing tone until about 13 minutes or so. Yeah, there's a little bit of a perversion of the first movement. Like, one of my favorite parts in that first part, the bois bois 
Yeah. Wow, those actually show up again, yet they're more clipped. It's almost like somebody has their hand on the machine itself, stopping a lot of the vibration, so they don't reverb. It's it's a lot closer, a lot There's less. There's a more muffled nature to it. Yeah, I mean the beat is is enough that the rhythm is tight enough that I really did enjoy this section, mm-hmm. despite I guess kind of missing the evolution of it. But you know, you have 18 minutes to deal with, so it's not the end of the world. But I it's did also, really like the pulse. This like brown tick tick a ticket, brown tick. Ticket, ticket. Like this is a little delay. It was the funkiest. It's, it yeah. kind of sounded the whole track. Yeah. What was What was really nice about it is I did view it as sort of an an, an interlude for what happens immediately after because immediately after we get one of the most interesting parts of this entire piece probably the most interesting part for me all right well that's like yeah like i said about 12 minutes and a half the the, you get sort of a short trumpet burst that is more of a primer uh for what follows it's it's barely of consequence on its own because it's really 12 minutes and 45 seconds that everything starts to really change everything quiets everything just simmers down uh quite a bit and it actually allowed me to hear the gentle return of the engine from the beginning Mm -hmm. which Honestly, I, in truth, on my first listen, I had forgotten it left uh, because it was so present throughout the early part of this track. But it, it doesn't really regain the full prominence that it had because at 13 minutes, we get the third creepy sound. And this time, it is the trumpet. Uh, but it's a very different kind of trumpet. It's just these modest, even bursts like they like he breathes on the one and it lasts for about three beats. So it's like... Breathe, breathe, three, four, you know? But it's mainly so creepy here because it sounds so human, almost like a psychopath snickering in the corner. And then even by... 13 minutes and 30 seconds, it, it dies down, and you even took on like a an animalistic air to it, just growling, even snoring in the background. Yeah, it even felt at moments like it was submerged, like the kind of sound a struggle would give off underwater when you're above it. This That's kind another. of muffled struggle or gasping. And it, it all of these sounds mind you very unnerving and unnatural. Uh, in their own way, and but if, I, I I loved it. I, I mean, did it feel was, it was natural. I I that's that's one thing I would I will fight you on. I didn't feel anything was unnatural. No, so not you're misunderstanding. Not unnatural as in fabricated. Unnatural as in sounds that wouldn't be made on their own. Like when you're being drowned, you make noises you wouldn't make on an everyday in everyday life. Okay. The kind of snickering that an evil psychopath would do that any normal person when they laugh would not make. I mean, unnatural in the sense of yeah. unnerving. But I guess to John's point, it's more natural compared to a lot of other stuff in this record. And yes. that's what made it seem, you know, it's that uncanny valley yes, sensation yes. a little yeah, bit. But, for sure. Uh, but what's interesting, I don't think this is exactly what, what the sound that I heard, but just toward the end of this entire spell, which is a really really long spell of him you know just almost one continuous phrase when he's not minute and a half almost. Uh, well he does breathe obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in moments but then there are moments later where i don't think he was breathing for a while so that when it does actually end there was like a a lifting sensation that almost felt like that was his final breath and yet i think it was more like a soda can popping it, it's i thought it, as a, it sounded uh, like a match being struck. or a match yeah, being struck that's yeah. what i that's what i took it as because it was and, this click and then and so, yeah, I mean, both sounds kind of have that same kind of pop and hiss. But it's a dramatic sound because it it really does bring us to the end of the piece. Effectively, it we got a few more, outro. we got a couple more minutes left here. But what starts to overlap these final bars is birds. 
just just finally the river as I felt it, or at least some near-sea uh, bay environment, it makes its appearance. It's overlapped at first, and then by 15 minutes and 12 seconds, the beat is completely gone. The instrumental component of this track is entirely over. It's pure field recordings now, pastoral, seaside, water splashing, and but right before the wild. but right before the water splashing though we get that uh, engine hum again f- as the most focalist it had been since the beginning but that that almost lends to the beach or water feel too because kind of shores and waves crashing also kind of have this hum to it but then that even goes away with the rest of the instrumentation and we are left with water splashing voices birds chirping that's another thing when i said wild just a second ago i don't mean wild as in you're in a wild environment because you have so much human activity in the background it's a wild choice Mm. for this track considering the direction that it was going on but actually it's maybe not necessarily because you had so much human influence earlier on like i said i i still hear some of those noises as jackhammers and I, it's lingering in my mind so to hear nature without human influence would be a stranger choice instead I hear human influence the splash feels intentional like someone did that that was someone nearby who made that splash and we also have vocal murmuring yep that. talking murmuring walking shoes on the wood of a deck or maybe the pier that's nearby the water planes overhead cars in the background so it was actually to me it almost felt like I was the microphone. I had become the microphone, and I'm just having a moment sitting perfectly still because I'm a microphone. I don't have legs. I can't get get up and go. I'm just taking it all in. Yeah, and I think that that powerful moment of kind of sitting in nature. First of all, I'm a person who can fall asleep to nature sounds, so when we get this really strong vibe of someone sitting by the coast, listening to the water, listening to the conversations around them, that's instantly relaxing to me. I think it had extra impact because of everything that came before it. I think that's where my understanding of this track, even though still lacking some comprehension, kind of comes full circle because a lot of that stuff had impact in its moment, but also was more powerful by the time I got to the end. It had this moment to relax and reflect. And I think that's the most important thing that this moment serves is it gives you an opportunity to reflect not only on the nature that's happening around you as if you were the microphone but also allows you to think and reflect on the track as a whole and that's exactly the experience that this whole last leg gave to me i mean it was extremely intermittent and i was glad that it was intermittent and not more controlled i mean like for a while the, there's the people are too far in the distance to be heard but then later on they come kind of they come back again they're a little bit closer and then finally the very last sound that you hear is just an overhead plane which was used actually as an opportunity a very unique opportunity to fade out the track like you hear the plane and then the plane fades away and everything has faded away by that point it has a surprising amount of power for being so low-key for being essentially the standard background noise you're going to hear when you're walking through a city park or something like that that's mm-hmm. what it really is on a on a quieter day maybe not new york city maybe a suburb yeah. something like that cuz honestly there's nobody cursing at you but it's it's underscoring profoundness i guess and that's how the Profundity. only way <laughs> it's it's the only way i can really look at it though it was uh, something that, honestly, at face value, when I was listening to it, I love the way it trails off, but it felt like two minutes too long. A little bit. I a little bit. From a superficial musical point of view. From I, the music itself. From the art, it actually solidifies the art 
a lot more than if it had been a standard fade out on the music itself. I still disagree because nature sounds to me are musical. And so for me, I think it still fit the track and added something to it as well. Actually, they're not musical to me, but that's exactly why I also disagree. Because Mm -hmm. it's in the musical moments of this track where I'm usually like, all right, when's the next thing? Where's the next? Come on, give me the next phrase. This is a matter of control. And so I want there to be more control. I don't expect control when you're recording nature. And so to me, at 15 minutes and 12 seconds, knowing exactly how much long, long the track had left to go, I'm looking at the track bar, I see, all right, 18 minutes. Uh, because, yeah, all right, I look at the track bar. Not everybody does, but I do. And I know where it's going to end. So the second I heard that, I was like, well, I'm cool with this being being the, the rest of the track. I'm absolutely fine with it. I just want, I want that time to reflect. And at, in retrospect, because a retrospect is actually very important for me for this piece, I, I totally agree with uh, Steve's assessment. I'm still not 100% behind Nature is Musical. There are certain things, but yes, in general, the random nature of it, though, that chaos of it, yes, has beauty, but I wouldn't call it music, per se, especially because... Oh, but I didn't call it music. Yeah, you did. No, I said it was musical. It's not the same thing. It has elements that remind me of music. It has a musicality to it, but I didn't actually say it was music. I think this is a debate for a longer day, but I would say in reverse. Music is trying to replicate the musical nature of nature. Be that as it may, we're all at the same now, John's point. got you there. We yeah. all agree. I'm taking a point for that. I'm taking <laughs> We all agree that, that the it was ending, a great, it was a great way to end this piece. It was a, a frankly just awesome way to end the piece. Yeah. All right, so now we all get to take a nice deep breath as this is our intermission before we go on to track to a different river once. Thankfully, or maybe not in the long scheme of things, this is a shorter track, clocking it at only 14 minutes and 54 seconds long. That's all. And only 15 minutes, as opposed to the 18 and a half we got previously. So uh, if you're on vinyl, this is your side B. Flip it over. Even though it kind of gives me a little smile to imagine that someone would be following along to this podcast using vinyl instead of, let's say, just another window. Or if you're, if, you're, if you're an audio snob, like, yeah, you are listening to this on vinyl, because it is available on vinyl. That's that true. <laughs> then you might Gotta be reiterate a, that You might one. be a snob about us, but you don't know. All right, track two, Different River Once. This, um, this piece, there was less of an immediate connection drawn as I drew in the first track. For instance, like, oh, engine, you know? Right. You don't have that here. Instead, this was made up of a few strange sounds, one that starts off sort of soft and then kind of gains strength. I actually had to listen to it a couple times over before I even had a theory as to what it was, and it remains that just a theory. And that's sort of a bowing effect, like perhaps a violin being played just above the neck or maybe just below the bridge. You can even hear the the individual strokes, the, the reversal in between, the reverse stroke. But honestly, could be just any object that produces a frequency because it's clearly straining to resonate at first. But it does get there, and when it does, ooh, ouch. The other part, uh, the major part of the rhythm section right now is sort of a filter pop, one that's hard to pigeonhole into any actual rhythm section because the whines that are going on, because of the strains that are going on, everything feels a little bit off kilter. And I'm loving this. I'm loving this back and forth between a rhythm section and a bowing section that really seem to be at odds with one another. Well, since you brought up the rhythm, it's actually hard to know whether those are 
programmed, whether it's programmed material or, or maybe just another combination of field recordings and arrangement. Well, I don't know. Maybe they are up at the mic just going pop and just flicking it over and over and over again. Because it really does feel like it, that. It, it, it achieves its goal in sounding very physical. It's a lot of pops and bends ranging from low to high, kind of droplet-like. Like those little <laughs> like that. Like this little uh, taper off toward the end. Whits, and it just cuts off. And occasionally gaps in the pops do appear, but like the screeching is really what dominates the whole first minute. It's, it can be a little bit unnerving. At least I seem to think that's, uh, that's Matt's take mm-hmm. on this. And it's doubled by a secondary screech more toward the right ear. And maybe that's the one that's more unnerving to you. I'm the, not sure. The sharp one definitely. This, the sharper one gives a ringing in my ear akin to tinnitus. This idea that it almost feels like piercing. Like someone's taking a sharp blade and poking it into your eardrum. Mm. I mean, it wasn't that excruciating, but there were moments where it made me like tilt my head and kind of like shrug it off. It was it was definitely irritating and a nuisance at moments. It was almost like somebody was bowing glass. Like yeah. it was that sharp, that kind of vibration. But for me, it never quite reached piercing, and I loved what it was doing. I loved just the just the polarity shift that each time it would hit, I would go through. The thing is, I feel like both composers were very conscious of leveling at this moment. Like I yeah. feel they had a lot oh, of control. Over, over amplitude, so you don't really get the the harsh strikes that you think. Like they're harsh, but it's within within a very narrow range, within a very narrow framework that I felt I felt safe. If that makes sense. Well, yeah, I would admit that it was my own. It's my own bias here that I struggle with those kind of sounds, and for the for, and doing it consistently, more or less, for two minutes was a lot for me because this does more or less go on for two solid minutes, and it it almost becomes unbearable for a while. I don't think you're bias towards it though. I think it is a very sharp and yeah. meant to be polarizing sound. It is definitely something that honestly I I would expect me personally to dislike a sound like this. It, it's definitely reminiscent of like nails on a chalkboard or mm. the screech of metal or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a harsh idea. But for me it was shy of being piercing. Shy right. of being the level of discomfort that I think you experienced. Well, there's a similarity to the first track, at least in terms of, you know, if this was your trumpet and compared to what it was doing, you know, there's a lot of gaps in the phrase work. So the intervals between these screeches are pretty prominent. They get more prominent as we get deeper into the minute mark. In fact, if I was to remove myself from the technical side of things for a moment and swing over to imagery, I would describe this as a scene right out of Chernobyl or like any post-apocalyptic scenario where they always got to show the playground for just a moment just to remind us of what's been lost so it's like the rusty squeaking of the roundabout or the seesaw and a couple of sad mutant kids just going ha ah, fun okay cool you just <laughs> described uh, Terminator 2 if I'm not mistaken right before the and a lot of other things yeah, and but actually Terminator every documentary about Chernobyl frankly. yeah but Terminator 2 did it first or at least did it best. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I'd agree with that? either of those two. Can you stand by that? I don't think you can. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, and I think what's interesting for me is even though I really didn't like what was happening here, I was intrigued to see where it went, mostly because I had rollover from the intrigue of the first piece, and it kept me engaged even though I was absolutely at moments uncom- completely uncomfortable. Well, what the more background-oriented draws did was create an elusiveness around the beat and the interaction 
of that rhythm section with the higher pitches, with those uh, long drawn pieces that have the space. Because the secondary draws were definitely low key, but they did a lot to fill in the area as we go along in these first two minutes. Well, let's go to the A section in that case, because it is quite a longer intro that we had in this yeah. piece than we had in the last piece. I feel like it's not until a minute and 45 seconds that we get a final swell, a final one of sort of screech again. But I think it was different. Because this, I believe, was another preview of the vibraphone. Yeah. But it was like, it was only used to sparse effect. It was channeling itself as part of the previous texture, which is why I still felt it as a final screech, a prolonged reverberation accompanied by more a more electronic sounding bass. And once that all fades, right, it leads us to just a little clearing here. The beats are still there, but it's quiet enough that I could finally hear what may have indeed been there from the start, and that's the engine. I think it was still there. The same thing you heard, you know, in the in the in the previous track, but here is where you heard it most because you didn't actually hear it at the beginning of this track. It's still very faint, kind of centered, no not anywhere near as prominent as it was in the last track, but it's it's definitely a dominant feature in this album. So we came full circle on something that was conspicuously absent until it wasn't. But Getting further into part A, uh, a section that is actually quite sparser than the intro, if that's possible. Yeah, the this part A, which took a little while to get to, the timbre of those screeches shift just enough that it's no longer painful or uncomfortable for me. Now they're just kind of striking and attention-grabbing, That's because which I, is what I kind of really wanted. Well, that's because I think this is utilizing the vibraphone here. Yeah. I think it was the, the same thing that was used as that transitional... A break between right. the intro and the section, and now it's being used as it's being used in the same way as the screeches were. Like yeah. I said, it's it's following that that approach, but it's different aesthetic, and yeah. it makes section A a much warmer uh, section. I'll admit that. Yes, for sure. All right. The only piece that does get added to the simple rhythm section is a little bit more complexity. It's almost like the pop filter got a little bit wetter or a little bit more pronounced in what it was doing and in the beats it was hitting but this only made the vibraphone feel even starker by contrast so then when it does hit this these particularly high sections that's where the asmr that we talked about i don't know hour hour and a half ago <laughs> shows up heavily for me that's when i was getting goosebumps well, up and down my it, spine it shows up even even deeper into this section uh, in a bigger way but at this point what was interesting to me was really that buzzing electronic bass cuz that's new and that's happening alongside all that other percussive stuff which yeah everything it's so much space at this moment and i i think the reason it feels warmer even despite these oddball sound effects a really strange blend is because I actually felt a, a home key here. Like, it's the first real tonal thing that I at least immediately recognized on this album. A tonal center, let's call it, not really a home key. Because those two instruments, the, the vibraphone on one hand and then the buzzing electronic bass on the other, they very often align on the note A. And then they part ways again. Like, the tension is felt, for instance, at, at 2 minutes and 17 seconds when we strike a B in the vibraphone, which rang out for, like, 10 seconds on end, but amidst which the bass the bass sticks with that A. So then you have that ninth there, which is kind of moving this along and holds the tension. Uh, same for when the bass goes down, I believe, uh, 
like a half a step down to the G sharp. A little bit of tension there too. But then later on, they all align again. All throughout the two to three minute span, these instruments are just trying to psych each other out, playing chicken, and then calling a truce. And that's what made it a really inviting section to me. It made this more of an approachable track, I'd say, than the previous track. Though for me, it took a long time to get there. Not long enough that I was upset or dis... Well, I was distressed but not upset, and I was not disinterested. I was still following along, but I felt like... I wanted this part to come earlier, though, again, like earlier, I don't know that it would have the same impact if I hadn't gone through a minute and a half to two minutes of unbearable screeching. It wasn't exactly a, like, just unbearable screeching throughout well, there, two uh, minutes. It, it was instances of, oh, God, why'd you do that? And I'm right, okay with that. Right. Well, this section really did have me exceedingly immersed, which is why I'm, I'm going to point out a few things in it before we actually push along further in the piece. Like, for instance, this is almost unrelated, but 2 minutes and 50 seconds was a nice little bit of ear candy for me. Actually, more like black licorice, if you like black licorice, because some people don't like those things. So it's actually very appropriate for the... Yeah, Matt doesn't, see? See? It's all in line. But 2 minutes and 50 seconds, all the external ambience that was present, I guess, throughout section A all of a sudden is just vanquished, but it only lasts for about two seconds. No beats, no engine, no nothing, except the lingering of that sort of, that sort of vibraphone sound. But then the bass kind of brings us back in. But for that two second period, for that two second interval, it was almost like being in the quietest room in the world. That, that room in Minnesota, you know, where everything is just completely uh, deadened and people can't actually last there for a very long time. Obviously, most people have been la able to last for longer than two seconds, but it was a very strange moment in this track, a, uh, in, a, in this section, a section that is already really quiet and all of a sudden it felt quieter. And that was just really dramatic to me. So it's very subtle because it's so fleeting, but it got my attention. But let's push further along here because the A section comes back again. At least they, we resolve to A. See, there's not a little coincidence here because A is actually the note that we're using and it's section A. See, coincidences, gotta love them. But th this does anchor you. And I think that's very important for this piece. And that's why I love this section so much because it is probably the one bit uh, of at least up to this point, of the entire album that actually does have me anchored. But now at 3 minutes and 30 seconds, we do bring back the screech from earlier, which kind of ushers us into a transitional section. And from here on, this really did affect me in the way that John described so eloquently before as ASMR, because this is something you'll often find in ASMR therapy. It's very often translated into a form of ASMR therapy because you can actually hear those little taps again. You can hear these like delicate taps near the microphone. It, it's even like scurrying to the left and to the right. It's moving about the room almost like mice or something like that. But it was a pretty interesting wrap up to this because it's texturally contrasting to all of the swoops and the screeching. Instead, it's just short little taps, but none of it terrifying in any way. So once all said and done, we get through this and then we get something very unexpected. And this is our I can only call it a section B, sort of, or maybe it's just another transition, but four minutes and 27 seconds, we got a vibraphone now, and it's a vibraphone for real. And it's a vibra... I would dare say almost a solo for the vibraphone. Oh, it's a solo. It is freaking the... It's distilled Disney magic. I felt so much at this moment. But at it, this section, it was just feels through and through. But for me, it was interesting because it felt both charming and dissonant at the same exact time. And it was weird because I was unnerved yet enjoying it. it and it was odd to struggle with that in sp that specific moment. 
at the same time. Well, it's because the vibraphone, first of all, it's being used as a featured spotlight instrument. It's not just a sound bite. It's playing something perfectly sensible, extremely musical, and tonal, but definitely fanciful. And that's where I agree with you, because it's sort of like some beat-oriented mid-sensory jazz, you know? Mm -hmm. Something I'd expect to hear in an old Twilight Zone episode, or frankly, any yeah. any strange avant-garde scene from any film in the 1960s. Uh, like, surprise, surprise, this James Bond villain has some eccentric habits. <laughs> <laughs> or even that whole like song and dance that Captain Kirk has to go through feigning naivete while he gets the grand tour on the strange planet. Like as you can see, we're an enlightened species. Oh yeah, no nothing's off here. Nothing's no, strange nothing at all. Well, that's why I'm saying it's distilled Disney because Disney has the the poor provincial town and Belle and all the the beauty of Beauty and the Beast, and it also still has Gaston. And you're gonna have a little bit of a sour note if you take all of that and smush it all together. You're gonna you're gonna still be a little bit skewed when you start adding in the villains to all the princess happiness mix. Well, and that's why it feels like it's just. It's just everything from my childhood kind of wrapped up in a nice gooey core, like my it, real early childhood. Except that you're using a far too recent Disney film for me to actually feel the reference. Like, because I describe this sort of mid-century, if I'm in Disney, then I have to be in that 1950s, 1960s Disney vein. Because the vibraphone also, as an instrument, was used so heavily in everything from that, from that period. It was used in a lot of classical music, it was used in a lot of jazz, it was used in a lot of scores. People just loved the vibraphone back then. I can't explain why, and yeah, still, you still gotta love the vibraphone, but it's that that beat style that I think is really what, what uh, leaps out here, and it's very different for this album. Lots of tritone usage, but constant sustain pedal uh, throughout the whole thing, because of course the vibraphone is an electronic instrument, like an electronic xylophone, but it, it's that sort of offsets the tritone thing, you know, that warm sustain pedal glow, and makes it feel kind of cozy. So remember, the whole point here is to lure Captain Kirk in, and Early on, a lovely vibraphone glissando kind of does that for you, which I can't say we've ever come across in any of our music, uh, any of the albums that we've done. We don't really get vibraphone glissandos or maybe even vibraphones, period. It just does its thing all for about 30 seconds, dies down, and then boom, five minutes in, a kind of sort of return of the A section in A prime. The rhythm section is more pulsed in its vibrations. It never quite leaves, unlike the previous A section where there were stark silences and what the beat was doing. Here, it's sort of always there. The vibraphone taught the rhythm section a lot about what to do in these brief moments of silence. A little bit. I wouldn't, I wouldn't separate it so harshly because, you know, it's more pronounced this time. I will agree with that. Maybe even a little bit more ear pain, to be honest, just to swing over to Matt's side of things. Um, I know I'm supposed to have a threshold for these things, but it seemed a little bit harsher this time around. No bass that I could tell, though, just sort of a gurgle that lies in that register. So perhaps in that sense, it's really more just like the intro than the A, but only in that sense. I, I actually don't have very much to say about this particular return because it, it added a sense of completion to this movement uh, in, a, in a fairly obvious way, and there isn't so much obvious on this album. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that the the silence and the space here surrounding the vibraphone allows movement one or movement A or whatever the hell we're calling it, the first movement. The whole first movement. To kind of culminate and lead us to what's a very bizarre transition, but spot on for movement two. It's just, 
I think if we didn't get those moments of silence for the vibraphone to just kind of play, this transition might have been more awkward. But because of those spaces, when we had a stark change, it was like, oh, moment of silence. Whoa, what's that? Well, basically, after about a minute of A prime, you get the, a final screech. If, yeah. if you're still calling it a screech, whatever, it <clears throat> rings to a silence. And at that point, almost everything comes to a silence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely everything. The, that last tone is about six minutes and four seconds. It decays. It probably lasts, decays for over ten seconds at a time. And yeah. there are even a couple of seconds where I can't even hear it decaying. It just, it just keeps on going. But then the only thing to make a sound over it, which I think was more of an Easter egg than actually a musical choice, was the sound of perhaps the performer squeaking his chair. Almost like a little moment out of, what, well, one of the oft-described Easter eggs on A uh, Day in the Life, which you can yeah. hear in the telltale tail, tail end of the piece. It you felt, can hear it here. It felt random, but it was striking for that randomness that was going on. I was I was in love with the use of silence. Not even the, the music or the noise or whatever you want to call it in between the silences. Yeah, and that's how I want to phrase it. The silences was the music that was going on right here, and everything in between was just breaking that up. Quick interruption, In Between the Silences will be the name of my debut album. <laughs> just because I like that phrase. It, it, was, it was stark. It was striking. It was devoid of a lot of the emotional connection I was feeling. And that's, I think, one thing I haven't really talked about. I was just emotionally enjoying everything up until this point. But it honestly doesn't really feel important to impart my emotions. Here, I love the fact that I was feeling void. I was feeling just kind of nothing going on. And it was great. For the record, feeling, feeling void will be the name of my debut, debut album. album. Okay. I want royalties on both of these. <laughs> Um, but what 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 happens to truly introduce movement two occurs at six minutes and thirteen seconds, and that's the vibraphone again, but different style now. Yeah. And I would I would liken this to an intro and not the true A of movement two or however we're describing it, because this is all just setup material for a good portion of the six minute uh, marker. Um, it's a vibraphone in its in its mid upper register, but without the use of the pedal. That's very noticeable, yeah. as opposed to the Star previous section. Starker, shorter notes Star instead of dragging the notes out. Exactly, just sparse, sparse phrase work as well. You know, yeah. sporadic little horror movie oriented things. It scurries in, and then you wait for like four seconds. Sometimes it makes use of the same use of space, that silence, as we use between the end of the drone and the transition into beginning this. It uses that throughout the entire section here, and it's just it scurries in, and then you wait, and then. It Scurries over here. It's it's going left. It's going right. It's very interesting, but it's all just set up. It's all just set up until our true A, our true A section of movement two, which I did not expect for the life of me. Six minutes and fifty two seconds. Me neither. Where in the club? Yeah, I mean, just it. The beat drops, and we get this heavy electronic almost glitch. Just like industrial glitch, yeah. Almost, I would, I, no, I, no, almost take away those almost. Yeah, it is glitch with industrial the, tones the thrown industrial on top components. of it. It is exactly that. I'm gonna be blunt, I ate this right up. Me too. It, it was I, phenomenal. We're all in agreement. I lost, lost myself. I well, was totally entranced by this because it number one, because it's it caught me so off guard, but it's just a full bodied 4 4 uh club beat, you know, which is not something that I'm often into, but this is done so much more tastefully because it's it, it's got the the woofer in, it's got those 
that semi-industrial framework, and it's just a one, a two, a three, a four, and then you've got the vibraphone that sticks the landing. It didn't leave behind the vibraphone. It, it, it almost validated what I retrospectively came to call the intro of this, or the, the prelude to this A section, uh, and kind of sort of, of a kind of sort of second movement, because the vibraphone just rolls right back in on the approach to beat one, uh, a couple measures in. It just sticks the landing, and then Ah, oh, it's phenomenal. It's a great combination of really bright ideas contrasting with like like dark noir cyberpunk combination that cyberpunk. I just, yeah, yeah I was getting I was getting that sort of feel. It felt like uh, I love to use this because it's a great frame of reference for myself. Ghost in the Shell kind of a feel, but sure. like with or even with Blade sun, Runner with sunlight. Like, who puts sunlight in Blade Runner? It seems brighter, but also what's really great about this part is we get to steep in it. Yeah, steep in like it. A, because like a tea bag. Because it sticks around <laughs> till the nine and a half minute mark, pretty much. We get to exist in this as it grows and evolves, but it's still fairly consistent with that main beat that... Steve mentioned earlier throughout. It's consistent, but there's a lot of detail here. Yeah. This is not the same experience as I had in the spell in the last track, mm -hmm. also about th exactly this far into that piece, come to mm -hmm. think of it, where I was like, eh, this could have been developed a little more. I feel kind of like I like it, but it's stable. This ain't that, because this has got so much detail. Even just beyond the vibraphone itself, you know, just sticking the landing, like I said, that two measures into the to the very, very beginning of this section, then it's like answered by this new percussion on the following fourth beat, this like machine gun sound, this do 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 that's the vibraphone, and then so it's all this like call and response stuff again. And then after that, the vibraphone is in total freeform. I mean, I don't know if it's freeform, but maybe it's just, it feels like a great solo of a kind over all this other stuff. Even the percussion itself sort of feels like it's in freeform. And they're just playing off each other. There's great moments here. Seven minutes and 47 seconds, and seven minutes and 55 seconds, you hear these little rattles. And then there's also an electric hum at eight minutes, which is all the interplay, the syncopation is perfect, and this bouncy two-chord motif in the vibraphone that follows that, which I felt kind of came to embody this section, that two-chord motif always, it's just, it, every single time it returns, it doesn't lose anything for me. It, it's, it kind of reminded me of the Gotan Project, actually, a, a, a group that you mentioned recently when we went through the, our little genre game and mm -hmm. it fell under like Jazztronica or something yep. like that. I was, I was always familiar with that group as falling under French contemporary tango. So uh, I just, I heard that and that particular approach here in these two chords. We're getting a lot of things we hadn't yet seen on the album. Which was, first of all, great that so late in a monstrous piece we're getting something brand new. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they could do something so, like, just so opposed to everything else and make it work so well, coupled with the fact that it's just, it's just like I took acid and dropping for the first time. And that it working great to be on acid here, to actually enjoy it, was just... This became, like, a, a magical piece for me. I feel like that's more apparent as we go on later, too. But I think what also proves that solidity is when we hit the nine-and-a-half-minute mark, when we get to the B section of this movement, where... You know, it's it slows down. It's kind of almost feels like an interlude. It's not. It's definitely a B section because we come back to it again later. It's not that it slows down because remember tempo, That's tempo doesn't change. It's rather that it gets thinned out a little bit. Yeah. So where we had it feels four, lighter. Where we had four beats before, it's now one for every four, and then the five the vibraphone is kind of filling this space with some just just some interlude work. I actually kind of felt the B section as more of an interlude, just some a thin eerie. 
a breather between the vigorous A's, especially considering that that, that lead up right before this, it, the beat progressively got more vigorous and mm -hmm. it adds in more stuff, more electronic components, so that by the time we, we, we come to this breath, it felt very much needed. Uh, we still, though, get some of the more polarizing ideas with, I want to go back to Star Wars that I mentioned very early on, and R2-esque screeches mm -hmm. of almost like comp computer pain. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's more than that. It, yeah. it actually feels a little bit painful. Like I'm doing the one I remember. You're tor torturing a robot or something like that. Like, that's they just They felt like outcries, in. yeah. And it's, I don't know how to take it. I'm okay with that. That was this actually is one of those comprehension parts that I'm okay with just not understanding. By the way, bits. those those sounds were in the return of the A section right. because I do want to emphasize the B section does not. It, it's a breather and it doesn't last very long. No. It literally is exactly that. It's a breather. It's just a, a brief intake of breath in case you just danced your your heart out on that previous A section. But it it's it's a little relentless. You don't you only have to breathe for a moment just just you know step aside to the side of the dance floor and then you come right back on full force and that's what we do at. A, accompanied by all of those other sound effects John was describing. Yeah, it lasts about 40 seconds. In about 10 minutes and 5 seconds, we return to A. And there is not a ton of change here. It's an, it's an A prime, but the, the changes are these sound effects that John mentioned. There's kind of a crackling sound, like as if you were watching it. The screen yeah. was breaking up a little bit. And it, it's these minor changes along with... You know, what we get later, which sounds like the vibraphone almost falling down something. These minor changes really make for going from the A to B here kind of starker, but also well bonded. Although those sections that you just brought up were actually in the return of the following the B. B section, yes. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep us all accurate here. No, that yeah. was a, a B prime, I guess, where we sort of cut out and then the vibraphone fills that space with a much more panicked like 16th note pitter-patter which really shows, shows off his skills by the way because uh, this would be Rupert Clairvaux as he's the guy that plays the vibraphones he's doing all our vibraphone work and honestly I've used the metaphor falling down the rabbit hole I feel too excessively sometimes on this podcast but no this is Alice falling down the rabbit hole because it's the music that I actually recall from that sequence in the 1952 Disney film. Just the sense of plummeting. And tonally, it's really wonderful because no harmony is left unaddressed. It's just pedal down the whole time. He wants to keep this as blurry as possible. And it's constantly interrupted by these little slurpy, staticky sounds. It was probably the climax to me, I think, of the entire piece. Well, unless well, you consider the opening, the, uh, well, um, mm -hmm. unless you consider the opening beat drop to be the climax, but to me, but this was what like this a... section was building up to. Right. I think that that thing that you were saying might be the climax, was the start of it, and but also it wasn't reason... going to get any denser than this. Right. And That's the reason me and John, I think, are getting ahead of ourselves with these moments is because I think this felt so unified that we're just kind of excited to throw out what we heard because it did work so well together. But we did get still more stark moments as we continue through this track because after this moment that Steve mentioned around 11 minutes and 30 seconds we do get a C-section. It is kind of a C-section because <laughs> not a C-section but you know it's not a C-section but no, a C-section. A C-section. It's part C. It's like an extension of the vibraphone because yeah. it's like the vibraphone on acid. Oh my god. Or rather yeah. in the hands of a very good producer because it sounds like he's taking a sample of his performance that didn't have pedal 
Uh, that's the first obvious thing about this. But then he's tapering off the beginnings and the ends of those notes. Yeah. So, I don't know. I could be wrong. Perhaps there's something else he did here, too. But this section... It doesn't last that long, but it's very, very no. strange in how those notes strike when you're not hearing the attack nor the decay that it would normally have. It's It becomes very otherworldly, that, that robot getting tortured again, or maybe that robot taking acid, and this is what yeah, it, maybe, what acid feels like to a robot. I or it, That would be a very interesting thing because they usually dissolve, but it's... <laughs> It's like the the culmination of a, the noir glitch idea that had been building, almost like they were borrowing, not necessarily the sounds of the first movement, but just the general ideas presented in this first movement, and integrating it into this C section. Well, it was fairly brief because it does lead us to an A. Yeah, I mean, it, it leads brings us to an to... A double prime again. We go right back in full beat. Uh, a little bit less jazzy this time, a little mm-hmm. less uh, freeform, because at this point it was starting to sound like an outro. Like I could sense, even though I didn't know it yet during the first listen of this, that this was going to be the wrap-up, the lead-up to our outro. And that's primarily through the use of volume. This was a pretty interesting part where the volume is coming in waves. It's rising up and dropping back down on the sort of like Klaxian crescendo that was built into the original uh, a section. So it rises up and it fades down and it starts slightly decreasing in volume. But as you hit these troughs in the waves, as it reaches its low point, the lows get lower and lower to the, till at, at, at some instances, it's actually using silence to hold the beat. And it's just, it's just, it feels like we're finally leaving. And also, you know, Matt brought up something earlier that we still have a few more stark cuts, a few more stark transitions. And I guess I didn't feel the, I mean, even though I didn't expect the earlier vibraphone bits or especially the vibraphone on acid bit, uh, they were pleasing to my ear and I still felt like they were connected. This was a bit of a strange one, though. At 13 minutes and two seconds, I did feel this as somewhat of a complete digression. So it's way of building to an outro was a little bit starker than I think the previous track did. It was a little more finesse in that as we just kind of blend into nature. This is the opposite, really. We go into kind of a machine shop at 13 minutes and two seconds. Do you hear the jackhammers uh, from from the last track, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, it does seem to connect us to parts of the first piece, and I think that's kind of important because I didn't really get a sense of a relation between the two pieces until this moment, which I guess if you're going to do it, do it in the outro. But it's it just does a strange sound... way to do it because there wasn't like a compositional blend into this. It was start, cut, now we're here, remember that? <laughs> yeah, but considering... It, it's more natural to blend into nature, I guess, pun intended. Here, stark machine shop transition. Also, cold machinery is starker and colder and less uh, yeah, natural. Right. I can't. So I would ar- that would be my argument, I guess. I would. I would <laughs> just say that the use of the vibraphone here, which has taken on a little bit of a different personality because now it's starting True. to feel like chime work, but it's still part of the vibraphone's ideas. I actually really liked the tone of the vibraphone, because it sounded like an, an interval of a minor sixth being raised up a half step uh, to another minor sixth. I could be wrong here, but I really, really liked that that little motif throughout this, and that was a through line. And coupling that with the gear work, kind of a feel, the kind of clockwork-ish... I'm drawing from another punk, steampunk this time, but it does have a very mechanical 
contrast to the almost wind chimes that were going on. And as they were resolve it's almost like the vibration from the previous sections is rearing its head that it's it's showing up and trying to get rid of the machine because it's less and less machine shop showing up maybe versus I, the vibraphone going on i could be wrong but i thought i heard voices at a, a certain point even in this track around this moment but it was kind of quickly suppressed by what we get at 13 minutes and 39 seconds which is our final little bash a, a really funky pattern out of the um vibraphone that i just dug the crap out of it was like this one and a two e and a e and four e and that kind of like but it's all in the vibraphone so i it's a little denser than i make out but it felt like a nice final groove because it is going to be our final groove. It's the last thing you can really attach yourself to, or dare I say even dance to, because this really did have me moving before the thing kind of just starts to rise in chaos throughout the 14-minute marker, and then it ends. Yeah. That's it. 14.54. Didn't expect that ending? <laughs> I don't know. I, I was satisfied with it. You were satisfied. I All was right. really satisfied with it. Uh, it gave me... A period on this album which was really, really necessary for everything that was going on. I mean, it, An it, ellipsis would have pissed me off the all. I mean, it just yeah. makes sense for Piece One to have a kind of ellipsis to, to kind of fade out on with that plain, fading, plain sound fading it out, whereas this kind of starkly ends. This one felt more aggressive in moments and, you know, more in your face, so I think a stark... And, and kind of in-your-face ending makes sense to me. It's just strange because it's it's antithetical to, I feel, what so many works of everything, music, cinema, often do, where they want to leave you off on an extremely dramatic note prior to intermission, right? Like the the crux of that rising action. And then intermission. So you can walk away in intermission and say, whew, wow, that was, that was something. But then here... Instead, they leave you contemplating for up to the intermission, but then they do this in the finale. I don't know. I'm not suggesting that in a uh, an epilogue here would have been appropriate. It was just really strange to me, then how they at how they were kind of flipped. I would just make the argument that uh, what what at the end of the day isn't kind of strange on these two pieces. That's a good point. <laughs> um. All right, I can see Matt's not going to go first for our, our final thoughts. And I don't have to, so I'm so happy. All right, I'm going to do something we don't normally do. I'm going to give my rating first and reason it out from there. I'm giving this a 4.5 for very different reasons than I normally rate. This was a mostly immersive experience. I confess, and maybe this is a fallacy, that it would have been dramatically lower had it not been for what I'm calling Movement 2 of Track 2. Because I like music as art for the sake of it, but I'm also human, and to be human means occasionally to be selfish. I needed something to sink my teeth into, and until that 6 minute 52 mark uh, on track 2, it was all, ooh, curious, mmm, curious, interesting, interesting, curious. But I 
think because I've never heard an album broken up like this, forgetting the two-track business, I mean, so many other artists have done less with more. And I gotta credit John here, because you definitely outshined yourself after Monument Builders by Lossel, because that album was also messing with expectations, at least at the very end, it actually made its way into my year in review as favorite finale of the year. And yet, I still couldn't, I still felt like it couldn't break completely free of the curiosity camp. Uh, this not only broke free, it passed parole, it got a job, it raised a family, and ran for public office. So yeah, by the end, I really didn't give a damn about its quote-unquote crimes or infractions earlier in the game. The end was just, poof, lockstep, on board. But it's made a little bit complicated by the fact that I know I'm always going to want to get to that end marker. Uh, that's a little tough. It's not a complicated rating for me, though, because quite simply, the 4.5 and up, the upper echelon for me, is for new forms of composition that don't leave me behind in the process, that don't get embroiled in their own drama, nor take themselves too seriously. Intrigue me first, then boom, stir me up, and that's exactly what this album did. So it's only short of the uppermost material for some sections that I thought could have been a little more compelling, uh, some that were some seemingly arbitrary digressions in its search for the end. I think it occasionally lost sight of process, but it was thoroughly enjoyable in that process. All right, my turn. Um, <laughs> I suppose I will follow in Steve's footsteps and also rationalize after delivering my rating. Don't worry, this won't be a permanent thing, but I think it suits this uh, project very well. Um, for me, this is at a 4.35. So I'm right near where Steve is in thinking that it's approaching the upper echelon for similar reasons. Um, I think the only reason I'm keeping it a little bit lower is because I did really struggle in moments. And the moments that I struggled the most were simply because I wasn't enjoying myself. The moments where I was having trouble comprehending or not even sure the point I was still intrigued, so I'm not even holding that against this work. Um, but I also agree that when it found itself a little less than halfway through the second uh, piece, I too, like Steve, was guiltlessly bobbing my head and dancing along. Like, I absolutely loved that. The problem is also, in a similar way, I would want to get to that and look to that. However, Instrumental pieces have a unique place in my pantheon, uh, like bands like You um, Bred Raptors and Joseph Bertolozzi's work on tower music and these bands and artists that are only instrumental that I s serve to listen to as instrumentals. I can see myself either falling asleep to this piece or using it to like start my day and get me moving. The first track kind of just ramping me up. So by the time I've had my coffee and that second track hits, I'm ready to groove and I'm ready to go. Uh, probably a really great commute piece. You know, first half you're waking up, second half you're energized. We drove to this here, it was awesome. And so I think for me, it, it has a lot more utility, I feel like, than complete works have had in the past, besides just being, hey, a thing I like to listen to. It has more utility beyond that, which I think is really interesting. Also, it's the first album in a long time with no theme, sort of an arc, and a lot less comprehension than I usually have that still wowed me and kept me completely interested. The last time I think that I was in an album that I was completely lost of arc and didn't really understand was Swans or Deep Chord, Take Your Pick. And I tanked those because 
I just couldn't figure them out, and they, it didn't seem like there was a reason to figure it out. Whereas here, and that was a bad thing, whereas here, I don't want to figure it out. I just want to enjoy it. I want to seep it in. I think Steve's analogy of being a microphone and just having to take it in is how I feel about this album, I think, as a whole. I'm a speaker. I'm projecting it and taking it in. You know, I'm just kind of there to absorb it. Um, and I think being a art sponge for this work is its greatest virtue, and I really dig it. So, 4.35. Well, I'm going to buck today's trend and stick with the old format and save it for the end because I'm going to try my best to convince you to go higher. Because, uh, in fact, I am higher. There's two things that this album has that I think you guys called bad, but I see as positives. You want to get to movement two of track two. You want to get to that part. Well, I know I'm going to be looking forward to it. And I'm not going to try to rush through side A. I'm not going to try to rush through the first seven-ish, eight-ish minutes of side B. I'm not going to try to get to that beat drop that just destroys me every time I hear it. Because it's like an old book that I love, that I love to reread. I know the, the beats that are going to come, but it's the buildup that really gets to me so that when that one phrase or one word or one line strikes me when I'm rereading a book for the hundredth time, it still strikes me because all the buildup was worth it just to get to that moment. And secondly, it's doing something in its, in its form that I haven't seen before, and that is one of my main criteria for fives. Now, this isn't a five. I want to point that out there right now. But it's pushing the boundaries of what acceptable compositional work is, of what you're supposed to do. It's trying to do something that is just not mainstream, that is out there, that is like the artist that you've already mentioned. And that is something to be commended. And it works. Its process, its ideas, its format works. So that two very different movements, or even maybe a third movement at the end of that second track, they are separate, but they work together in a cohesive, unified piece while experimenting, while coming up with new ideas, while integrating natural and artificial together. I, I have to commend it for that. So for 4.8... It really is a very upper echelon piece that I unabashedly dove into and didn't surface until the end of it. I think the only thing I would say to support my continued and, and stoic claim at a 4.35 is that it's not something I feel like I could revisit that much. I, I would need to be prepped to listen to it again. Sort of like how I've prepared myself and gone back to the paper chase for way different reasons. See, and I think also for me, it doesn't do everything right. I think that the screechings for me, while artistically they fit, musically, I can't really enjoy. For me, my only argument against that, the fact that some things aren't right, or I guess quote right, which... I've used the same sort of terminology. I'm not criticizing you for that. But I think its flaws are actually a benefit for all of the very electronica and non-natural sounding that's in parts of this. 
having flaws. And even I would consider the nature section at the end of uh, the same river twice to be a flaw for the format of the electronica. Having the flaws of the screech humanizes it. I well, I would disagree because I don't think the nature part is a flaw, and I, I also no, 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 disagree. No, not a flaw in general, but a flaw for the composition of the electronica that preceded it. Okay, as in it's belying the order that came. We, we called it chaos after order, so that would be a quote flaw. Okay, I still disagree because I personally don't find anything redeemable about the screeching. I get I, that would be I would I'm totally acceptable of that. Yeah, I will definitely that's, accept that's, that. That's where I stand. They were too. perfectly redeemable for me. I was not in pain as as you were in pain. They were it was just like, "Oh, ooh, that's kind of high, but it's not it, it all blended too well with the music. This was not an artist that was this is not danger music. She's not no. trying to uh Again, it wasn't actually painful. It was yeah. uncomfortable and I did not like it. Well, I will say uh just to remark on one thing that you said, it actually makes me feel very uh, validated in my 4.5 and that is the fact that this album I think has increased my threshold for this type of music. And that words, I would agree. It with. has opened my like, like. It was not just a work sitting in a pile, a create an albeit creative, you know, work sitting in a heap of other electronica albums. This has actually made me want to try to find other artists that do things specifically similar to this. I, I would I'm, agree with that. That is an upper echelon material. I would agree with that. It, but it doesn't affect my rating. It's right. considered in my rating. I'm okay. so happy for that. Actually, that yeah, that, I, I've had a feeling you were going to be. This is brimming. the this is the no. This is the first Electronica album that did exactly what I wanted what to you do. What set which, out to do? Yeah, which was engage in conversation, but more importantly, try to make you want more of it. Because I tried that with Deep Chord, failed miserably. <sighs> yeah. And I tried that with others like Aphex and Mutant and uh, Low Sill, like the other pieces I brought on. All less so failures, but still not quite successful either. And me. I want to reiterate, I'm I'm a I'm a fan of Electronica. It's it's just so much. I guess it is just a. Maybe. It is just one of those things you need to hit upon the the, the right work because mm-hmm. there is so much of it that can feel kind of like what I always say about you know metal yeah. and how you walk through aisles and every album cover looks the same. Well, it's not as easy to size up what an electronica album cover looks like, but I feel like that's very often the reaction I have. Let's right. say on a on a sample set of two measures worth of beat work. Sure. You know, it's almost like that same reaction. Be like, oh boy, here we go. Right. Sure. I, it also, I have to say, as much as I'm going to revisit uh, the artists themselves, um, Two Changes actually is going to prompt me to take a hard look at uh, Parallax Editions themselves. Because if they're... See what else they're producing. Yeah, you know. a tiny little place, from what I can gather, out in Barcelona that seems to just be trying to produce four new artists or four quieter or less known artists like if they're it's common if they're, if they're for, doing you this. know there's a lot of publishers that start off very small basically as as tailor-made to a specific number of people that may have been created for exactly that yeah uh, and it's all just to help in the stepwise process and lead them to hopefully something bigger yeah. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that this is definitely what I like. My experiment that we did at the start of the year is kind of leading us to do more stuff like this, which I appreciate. And you know what else I appreciate? Steve and his musical term of the week. How could you appreciate it? We only had one. I appreciated that one. I appreciate Steve in general, like as Aww. an idea. Oh, I as a concept. Well, he does the recording. He does the editing. <laughs> That's so true. I don't have to do as a it. concept, I appreciate him. As a person, he's kind of obnoxious. <laughs> 
<laughs> Let's see how it works in theory. Um, <laughs> music term of the week. Sense. Like as in to sense something? Nope. Spell it. Sense. S-E-N-S-E. C-E-N-T-S. Oh, sense is in money. That's yes. why I asked you to spell it. I hope you have the good sense to keep some sense on you. <laughs> How is it a music term? It's a unit of measuring musical intervals. And as you can probably guess, it is a hundredth. A hundredth of the nearest one, the only one you can play on the piano, and that's a half step. Okay. So it is a one hundredth of a half step. So wouldn't that means... actually be a two hundredth of a step? Step? Yeah, but they don't, we don't go by that. No, okay. I don't know. I don't know why we don't. We don't do that, that seems like the only way you can make it apply to real life, other than in possibly quarters and eighths well, of a half step. The reason it it's applies, like, it's like you can only do that with a computer. I'll tell you why it applies. It's a it's a wi widely adopted in acoustics as well as in ethnomusicology. It's important for tuners so that they know what to do. And a reason it's important oh. for ethnomusicology is because not every single instrument in all parts of the world had the foresight to be perfectly lined up in what is called uh, the well-tempered scale. The well-tempered scale is basically a machination. It is something we have we've contrived in order to make life easier for all musicians, so that when we play a C in one part of the world, it is a C on the is other it, part of the world. Is it like doe, a deer, a female deer, ray, a drum? Well, that would so la that, you're, you're basically doing the major scale. That's the major, but that's like part of that whole thing. Um, what you're I'm trying to actually Wikipedia this like in my head right now. I'm clicking linking. Well, arguments. basically, it is a hundredth. If you want to interpret it that way, it's a hundredth between me and fa. That is an extremely small change in pitch. But that's because that's a half step. And what is it? Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Ti and do is also a half step. The rest are whole steps. Okay, so Tito uh. is full of a hundred cents. Tito has a hundred cents. That's that's pretty good. I love that. I'm right, sorry. That's, right, that's, that's the logical that's, evolution of this. That's glorious. Right. I'm using that if I ever become a music teacher. Right? I'm telling you that'll that right be now. Your, that'll be your Tito has a hundred cents. That's your sophomore album, right uh, there. Tito there has a hundred steps. I forgot my. I know that's my primary album now. It's uh -huh. overwritten. Overwritten. Okay. The other one. You don't even remember that the other one was. Nope. Nope. I don't care anymore. Tito has a hundred cents. Right. Is my first, my debut album. It's my debut. Well, now that we ha have helped you solve that dilemma, why don't you tell us what we're going to do next week? Existential crisis. All right. I have the pick for next week, and we are doing Amaterasuru. I don't know. I'm being a little too Japanese about this because I don't know the exact pronunciation here, but it's Amaterasu, if you want to be very, very uh, strict by the numbers and Anglican about it. It is by the band Korima, or Korima. Don't really know. So, um, remember when we did that little genre project? Yeah. I just, remember, I just mentioned Danger Music uh, mm -hmm. a moment ago. Well, that other one that I brought up in that little project, it was just uh, two weeks ago, by the way, that we did this little experiment, um, and that is Zoil. Or soil. I oh, still don't know whether right. you're supposed to go toward the Z or the S more, but it is spelled Z-E-U-H-L, and this is a band that thoroughly considers themselves Zoil. Um, I, the funny thing is I was actually looking for something a little more classical-oriented, because uh, I was kind of inspired by last week. I was like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to go toward, I'm going to search for something that is classical but other. And I did not expect that the first classical piece that I found on a prog band listing mm -hmm. would actually be accompanied by Zoil. Mm. Like, that was just coincidence. Pure coincidence that the first one I saw that had classical also had Zoil. And after listening to a little bit of it, uh, I don't know whether it really is as much classical as it is Zoil from what we now know about Zoil. 
In fact, it may be the opposite of our recent album, uh, just last week, Chambers, in that it really isn't classical in aesthetic at all to my ears, but in form and principle, it absolutely is. Uh, more so than Chambers, despite that there are many bite-sized tracks here. Uh, but there are a couple of monsters, just a couple, um, but mostly it's pretty consumable, but still lots of theme connectivity, and that's how I I'd say it is classical in principle. So, uh, yeah, perhaps it's what John was seeking more of on Chambers by Chili Gonzalez, because he didn't see a lot of theme connectivity. Well, he's going to get it now in Zoil. Or in, in Amaterasu by Kar- I, I love that we're all living up to our indie and new expansion cred. Uh, I may break that mold a little, but still lean. To- but I'm going to still lean towards the more indie stuff, but bring something that's more in John's wheelhouse, I think. Okay. Either oh, way. Now- Nope, no spoilers. Uh, Before John can ask any more questions, I'm going to remind you, as always, music is life. And and life life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.